Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host as always, Sean DeVries. So thanks so much for tuning in. Now, food brings people together and promotes community. And here at Principle of Hospitality, we're disrupting the current perceptions of what the hospitality industry can achieve in today's ever-evolving and challenging environment. So that's why we're so proud to partner with Chefs at the largest family-owned and operated hospitality supplier in Australia on this season of Poe. Now, tucked away in Melbourne Laneway is relaxed fine dining restaurants. For eight years, Rui Modern Chinese has perfected the balance between the traditional Chinese cuisine and an elevated dining experience that people adore. Rui is a Chinese spiritual object passed down through generations. It is said to bring good fortune and make everything in life as you wish. They have only one wish for you dining with them that they may find a sense of comfort and joy in the simplest of pastimes. So I feel fortunate to sit down with the founder of today, Sheng Feng. Hey, Sheng, how are you? Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me, Sean. Absolutely. Uh, absolute pleasure to have you to come on. Uh, so I know we've we've talked a couple of times over the last couple of months. So I've been been very excited to have you on and, and, and talk about, you know, this fantastic restaurant in Melbourne. It's an honor for me to be on this platform. Thank you. Thank you. When we talked uh, the end of last year, like I found out that you know hospitality wasn't your first industry of choice that you actually did. So how did it, how did it actually come about that Rui restaurant was actually started? Where'd you come from before that? Okay, it's a long story. <laughs> yeah, uh, when I was in uni, I did economics and finance. So in the uni I attended, it was a three years course extended to four. So uh, for the third year, it was a program, what they call co-op year. So the university uh, help you, but not guarantee you uh, a job placement in one of the uh, corporate they, uh, they associate with. So I worked for ANZ for one year. Uh, at the end of the year, they said, yeah, go back to uni, finish up one, another year of theory, and then come back, we'll, we'll, we'll keep the job for you. So um, I was groomed to be a foreign exchange trader with ANZ. Yeah, I think that was my uh, life goal. That was my life plan. Yeah, but the life took a, a very interesting twist in the last year of my uni. I'm not sure if anyone here is from my era or remember the times in the late 90s, there were these tech bubbles. So this is when NASDAQ got listed. And in Melbourne, we had companies like Melbourne IT and the DevNet, wishlist.com.au, all these companies went, um, yeah, like little mushrooms are popping up from everywhere. Yeah. And the share price, when they're going out, when they get public listed, share price was going berserk on the listing day so in the last year of uh, of my uni i actually there was opportunity came along and uh, i started to get into an it project so and that business uh, it was a business and then that business very quickly flourished it was like sitting on a rocket uh, within six months investors people funded me so it was a joint venture with microsoft so very quickly i was established and then, so I didn't really, yeah, so I didn't went back to ANZ. Uh, I kept going with the IT uh, business. So, yeah, I was what today would be called an uh, IT entrepreneur, I suppose. That bubble crushed August 99, I remember. Everyone that, that I know in the, I knew in the industry basically closed up one by one after that. And my business kept going until uh, September 2001 when I decided there's nothing more I could do. So I just, yeah, and it's time for me to fold up. And after that, I, yeah, I had invested in other, a lot of other projects. Some are success, some not so successful. And uh, when my first child was born, I decided to be a stay-at-home dad and trying to be the best dad in the world, giving 
uh, all the attention that, that I could offer to him. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed. And then uh, when my son, when my, yeah, when my son started three-year-old kinder, so this is when I, I decided, uh, I think I should get back to the business world. Uh, I noticed uh, my son Cedric loves noodle very much. So at home, I started experimenting this uh, ancient uh, noodle making recipe that no, no one in modern days has, has tried out. After a few months of uh, perfecting the, the recipe, yeah, I started to go around a restaurant in the city, restaurant in Box Hill, and uh, going through the back door of the restaurants, going to the kitchen, talk to the head chef in those restaurants and asking them, would you like to try this noodle? And, uh, and then some of them, they, they tried my product and then they, and they kept using it. So this became a commercial, commercial um, manufacturing plant. And then I kept going. There's, so we opened uh, one factory, which is in uh, one factory, which is uh, just a production line making noodles or the dumpling skins, a lot of pastries. Yeah, it's like a production line. And the other one, the other factory is like a studio where people handmade the products, yeah, like dumplings and raviolis that yeah that sort of stuff so all the is a food processing business but then yeah handmade it's fresh so uh, we don't put additives in it after that we, i did that for about three three four years we did a very intensive marketing a radio uh, marketing for one year and they try out to promote our brand and push our product further into a supermarket because the customer base at the time or even now it's still predominantly for restaurants because these are utilized by commercial uh, kitchen staff, by the chefs. So they know what a mediocre product and a handmade and niche market product. And then I found that there wasn't much success because uh, one day I was in a restaurant and uh, they use our products and the, the table next to uh, sat next to me and said, oh, this noodle is fantastic. And, and straight away, the waiter said, yeah, we make it this morning in, in the kitchen. <laughs> so... So I noticed why is it so hard not letting people to know about our brand, that Old Town Pastry, because uh, with our market, they all claim it's house-made, it's made by their, by their own kitchen, fresh. There's nothing really about, about our brand uh, or value that's been passed down to the end users. So I started to have a vague idea about having a restaurant, a eatery place, and this was just, just an outpost somewhere in the city to further promote our product, almost like a flag point. We can put a flag off. Yes. Yeah. So people to know, you know, this is the kitchen would just be very simple. So all the products we, we make in the morning and it will be transported by refrigerated van to, uh, to the kitchen in the restaurants and they get cooked in there. That, that. But then, yeah, I've never worked in a kitchen, to be honest. I've never managed uh, a kitchen team. Well, wasn't really sure about doing that. And then one day I was walking in the city, visiting clients, and I noticed there's this little restaurant uh, in the city. The market is mostly students. Chocolate blocks, so busy. They have a queue in the front every day of the week, lunch and dinner. And I check on their menu. 80% of the products on their menu is either from our factory or could be from our factories, including the sauce and condiments. So I thought, hey, uh, we don't really, I don't really need a, professional chef and this we have the products we have the recipes and we can just do this ourselves so i thought about this concept of something called a dumpling and wine bar i felt this is something never really i mean these days you know food and wine pairing is like hand in gloves but dumpling and wine this is something never really tested before i I thought this is good yeah i thought this could be a a very good idea yeah when so when was this when you were starting to look 
for the restaurant? Like what year was this? This this was 2012. So you sort of done the- 2013, noodle- sorry. Yeah, 2013. So the noodle business and, and doing that to wholesale and to restaurants was probably about five or six 2008. years. 2008. Yeah, okay. That was 2008 yeah. I started. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So my son was born 2004. Yeah. So this all just stitch up the whole timeline. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's an amazing venue. And then you've decided that you probably want it. Is that what you sort of thought? So I have a concept that really is just a blueprint. I don't really have anything tangible. You know, I don't, any, I don't really understand anything. I mean, of course, I, I don't understand as much as what I do now uh, about restaurant vibes, the market segments, or even marketing managing a team. One thing about me is design and art is one of my passion in life. So in my friend circle, I do have a lot of designers and architects. A very obvious next step is to find a shop, which I found, and then start to talk to some of my friends who are architects about designing this restaurant. So I have my concept come into reality. And we had one concept after another. There's nothing uh, wrong about their skills and experiences. But I just found that something is missing. It's not what I owe. It's not something that I wanted. It's something I can't really put into words. I can't describe it, what exactly I want. It's just lack of a feeling that I'm trying to achieve. And it's just always missing. So what I did was that, so I started to contact some of the design agencies, interior, interior design firm. One of them, I contacted three. One of them is I respect the most. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel every project that they design is out of this world everyone is every project is different it's unique it's not like you know a production line you know everything they come out it's always have similarities in them there's yeah just everything is different and then yeah this firm was uh yeah it's Hecker Guthrie and I was being nervous about approaching them because they are highly influential and also the amount of the standard of the work they they do it's it's just best of the best you know, the most, I would describe as most influential design from, from Australia to the mm-hmm. rest of the world. But to my surprise, yeah, they're actually most down to earth, very friendly, to, yeah, very nice people. I remember I started to talk with Paul, Paul Hacker. He didn't really ask me exactly what you want. And he asked me, Shane, what have you done in your life? And what sort of design you like? And how do you decorate your own home? And what sort of car you like? And uh, what sort of food, what sort of book you read, and all that. I think I think that's just the best way to do business is to paint a picture, trying to figure out what yeah what type of people you know, this client is. I remember one day we had we did a site inspection. Yeah, we sat in, inside the restaurant, and uh, my wife said we started to talk about Japanese design. And uh, I remember yeah, my wife mentioned you know Paul Shane thing yeah in his past life he was a Japanese. <laughs> and so he loved everything Japanese, the Japanese design, Japanese culture. And um, Paul Hacker's office manager, Michelle, said, you know what? Yeah, Paul thinks the same. <laughs> so, and then Paul Hacker stood up and, uh, and then he said, uh, you know what, Shane? Yeah, you're going to hear from me very, very soon. Yeah, you're going to hear from us very, very soon. And then he left. And the next week, we got a phone call from uh, Michelle, the office manager. She, she said, yeah, uh, we would like to have a meeting with you and to talk further about the concept and the idea. And when we, we attended the meeting, when we arrived at the office, there was designs already done. The full concept was yeah. already done. And it just, I look at that, I just felt, my gosh, this is just exactly what I wanted subconsciously. And Paul Hacker and Hamish, they just knew me. They might be friends for years. They just knew me. 
yeah, and the relationship was uh, the whole working experience with them were just uh, nothing less than fantastic. It just yeah. yeah. How did you come from the design to then being you know open? Did it take a long time from you loving that concept to actually opening this venue in the way you wanted to? So it took it took exactly a year actually. Right. Wow. From the time I found this venue, decided to do this project, to the time that we get to open. I mean, yeah, first few months, I think it was a long settlement. It was like, it was like a three, four month settlement. So we couldn't do anything. I wasn't really getting anywhere with losing of direction from the initial concepts. As soon as we started talking with the right people, it took about two months to get all the people together. Interior design, brandings, and then we started to do building. I mean, building, it took about 10 weeks. And then uh, marketing, PR, exercise, uh, social media, and all that. Yeah, when the build is almost coming to an end, and I start to look around, stand in the middle of the restaurant and uh, look at all the design details coming to reality. And I just felt, hey, this is too good for a dump, just a one, dumping a wine bar. Mm-hmm. I think, I feel like we can take a step further to modern Chinese. And uh, food and design has always been a passion in, in my family upbringing. There's two things we always get to talk about in the family. One is the houses. Yeah, my, my, my grandma couldn't stop talking about house until the day she passed away. Right. And so, yeah, design, uh, yeah, styling, all of that. And the other thing is that, yeah, it's, um, it's food. So how did, yeah. so did you start, did you start the concept as the, as the dumpling bar or did you, did you start it as what, it, what Rui is now, which is obviously the one in Chinese? So with the build, with the renovation, all that, during that phase, it was, it was dumpling and wine bar. Okay. Yeah. As soon as, as soon as we opened, we changed the modern Chinese. So that has been a concept. Right. Yeah, for Dang. the last, that's right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Coming into running a restaurant for the first time, obviously you had great knowledge of being in kitchens from selling people like the amazing products you're actually producing. Like, what did you find the most challenging thing about running a restaurant, owning a restaurant, you know, being a restaurateur for the first time? I think it's just same as, I, I think, I think a restaurant, it's a very intense industry. It's what I call a solid industry. It's intense. I, I think I don't need to explain that consume all your knowledge, uh, all your experiences, and all your energies. I mean, restaurant is what I call a university of society. You learn everything in here. It's, it's really learning the life, life lesson in here. That is, look, when I started this restaurant, I had, you know, I, I, I didn't work a day. I'm trying, just trying to be honest. Yes. <laughs> and here, yeah. I'm not trying to be my master chef or when I go out, look, I, I never worked a day in a restaurant. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know about hospitality culture. I didn't know about, all I had was a concept and I didn't know how to manage the kitchen stuff. So how did you and learn how to do that then? Just from, yeah, just from life. Yeah. If you want to swim, yeah, you just, uh, you get in the, you don't talk about water. You don't touch the water. You just get in the water and you start swimming. That's it. Yeah. yeah, of course. Did you, yeah. did you place yourself sort of front of house, back of house when you first opened the restaurant to get an idea of what was going on or did you, did you move around? So when we first opened, because of the marketing exercise, because of some of the PR that we did, I think same with a lot of other new restaurants, we had a honeymoon period of about three, four months. It was so busy, the front entrance door couldn't stay shut. And uh, it was a fine dining restaurant. We had a queue in the front. uh, So that was how busy it was. Obviously, I I started to realize there's a lot of issues internal issues i mean that was eight years ago 
-hmm. I didn't know about service. I didn't know about uh, kitchen. Uh, I didn't know about yeah, hospitalities. So I started, initially I started in the front. I mean, if you want to be a, a manager, you really have to have an overall experience front and back and everything. Great. Yeah. So I did about six months of service, front of house service. I brought in a food and beverage manager from, from Park Hyatt. Yeah, it was a female person and she was uh, a Korean national and she was the first female uh, F&B manager in, in Korean uh, hotel industry. So she came along and she taught me what is a service. So all that training, all that practice, it laid a solid foundation about Rui. And people come in, I have to say, day in, day out people rave about the service that this restaurant offers. I mean, it's not for everyone, of course. I mean, people come in all different you know, shapes and sizes, and uh, this, it's impossible to, to offer a service that is generic to everyone. And then after the service experience, I basically got into the kitchen and started to build my own team and yeah, started to train my people and started to better my own venue. Was there a certain period of time that it took for you to sort of feel comfortable? Because I imagine coming from the ground up, you know, you spent, mm. uh, you know, a lot of money on the design, the build out of this, this new venue, put your heart and soul into it. And then you have to start from the, mm. technically the bottom again and learn all these skills of your staff. So therefore you can manage them appropriately and understand their job. Was, mm. it, was there a moment, was there a service that you sort of felt, oh, I think I've got it now. I think I really understand everything that's going on. Oh, um, just while there, to set up this restaurant, we have people come here all the time and they, a lot of people ask how much you spend to set up this restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I got to tell you, yes, it's, uh, Sean, it's a million dollar feed out. The one thing good about Hack Gathering is that they really try to utilize your resources to the most efficient way. Sure. And this, uh, the feed out, it does look million dollars, but I got to tell you, it didn't actually... I didn't actually really spend that much, I will tell you. And the other thing is that this restaurant, in its year of opening, it won the Grand Design Award in Australia, uh, Grand Interior oh. Design Award in Australia, in the category of hospitality design. And eight years on, we still get people coming in for the design. Overseas people, interstate people, they come in to pay homage to this uh, design classic. And one thing they don't ask is that who actually built this, <laughs> this fit-out? Uh, I got to tell you, it's built by a master builder, and that is me. <laughs> <laughs> well done, you. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I was a builder to this whole video. Not, not that I physically built it. I, got, I had a quote. Uh, it was going to cost over a million dollars to build. Wow. And uh, the time is eight weeks. That was on the contract. And I built it myself. And it took me 10 weeks. Yeah. Wow. It wasn't smooth sailing. It had a lot of up and down, a lot of... Yeah, uh, funny stories. I mean, uh, in terms of how long it took, uh, I think service it took me about six months, six months to 12, six to twelve months. Kitchen it took me about it took me about twelve months to learn all the trade, okay. uh, the skills, and then it took me another six to twelve months to build up my own team. And how much do you think that helped you over the last couple of years? Has been you know a really challenging time for the industry to sort of have you know that deep seated knowledge of really understanding your restaurant. From, from every nook and cranny, I'm sure that would have been really helpful. Oh, it's, yeah, it's highly valuable, of course. Yeah. So the result of that is you really build your own team and these people loyally follow you. Mm. And it's like a very tight-knit uh, team and it's like a family. They follow you no, no matter what. The, the shortest uh, person has been in the kitchen now is five years. Yeah, wow. That's a short. Everyone else longer. Yeah. 
that's right. Yeah. Have you managed yep. to build that, Ching? Have you have yeah. you managed to build that culture within the team that they want to stay for that long period of time? I think kitchen stuff, what they really want is to be understood. Interesting. Yeah. It's not really about money. Of course, in terms of money, you gotta pay them, you gotta pay them reasonable at a market rate. And they have to, you know, this business, we have 12 people working here. And uh, this little business of mine, this, I wouldn't say we are the biggest restaurant in the city. Uh, it's got, yeah. And here we have 12 people working here and they all have their family or relationships. So this business, we support 12 families. You gotta put it in their own shoes. They have to, they have to be able to run their lifestyle from this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the mo- mo- most important thing is that they need to be understood. Yeah, what they enjoy the most about this job, uh, what they're trying to get from this job, and what is most challenging uh, to work as a kitchen staff or service staff. And you got to acknowledge that. It's not that I don't discipline uh, my team. When it's so busy, I have to say, in the kitchen culture, when you're using F word, you know, swear at your team, I have to say, it is the most efficient uh, way to communicate because it fixes the mistake straight away. when it's so busy and we have a two session packed and we have queue in the front Mm. people come in they spend 150 dollars ahead and it doesn't give you a lot of space to make mistakes you cannot wait you know there's a golden rule in hospitality people cannot sit in front of an empty table for more than three minutes yep seriously if they they wait for their food for too long no matter how good your food is they will lose interest so we cannot there's no, there's no time for me to go up there and say, could you please, I got to explain to you, you got to do this, do that. Really just take my, just, just freaking do that now. <laughs> and the reply I, I expect is yes, chef, yes, chef, yes, chef. That's it. You know? yep. Look, I do that. But the thing is that team members, they don't walk out on me. You know why? Because they understand me and I understood them. But after the production session is finished, when we talk about personal life, when we talk about, when we do training, when we, we really sit down together, almost like we break the bread together, we break into crumbs, and I explain to them in details, try to understand them, what challenges they're going through in their life, in their professional life, and trying to help them. Yeah, we had a team member, he's from Nepal, been working with us for about, for about three years, mm-hmm. and uh, he went back to Nepal to get married. And I followed him on Facebook, so I look at his wife, and uh, what type of woman that she is mm-hmm. and uh, after checkup on his wife i already knew that uh, he's not going to work here for a very long time after come back because the wife is not someone going to support him <laughs> to work in hospitality you know every night leaving leaving her alone in the house so i'm already prepared for that mm-hmm. uh, honestly yeah, but then afterwards uh, but then the wife after about a year or so he come back from the wedding the wife also arrived and then I heard from other stuff saying that, yeah, the wife did actually talk to him and said, yeah, I don't like you to work in that restaurant. It's long hours. It's, and you know what he said? Yeah, I like, but it's long already tough work, but I like to work there because I have to work anywhere, any, somewhere anyway. But the yes. thing is that, that, yeah, that boss understands me. Yeah, he knows me. And we don't need to talk, but he already knows what I feel. And that's most, I think that's most important. Yeah. So this is a type of HR, I suppose, that I do in this business. If you look, if you walk in the city, you look up and there's all these skyscrapers and all these corporates and in those buildings, they all have this HR department. Yes. Look, in this business, we don't have HR department, but I'm the HR and I study the HR. I read books about HR because fundamental thing is that this is, hospitality is nothing magic. 
It's not like like Intel factories, <laughs> you know, all made by robots, and uh, everything has been made by two hands. The biggest asset it is the biggest, the most important facility is the people that you put in. Yeah. yeah, of course. You can't afford to put wrong people. There. For me to find one person, it takes it usually takes about five hundred interviews. <laughs> right. Okay. That must be pretty and tough at the moment. Many, and, no stuff. <laughs> and many, many more resumes that yes. I read. It usually takes about six months. Yeah. And after that, yeah, a lot of trainings, a lot of investment uh, on this person and you know, make him or her feel comfortable here. That, yeah. That's how I build a team. Yeah. yeah. So once they're in, they're really in. Yeah, I understand. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Last so, year when we, when we spoke, we talked a lot about, you know, technology. I know how much obviously you love technology. You talked about it at the start of start of the podcast like how are you feeling about technology at the moment and its role that it should play in restaurants and hospitality both for guests and for staff i think hospitality is we hear people say with ai ar vr all these things metaverse 90 percent of the job that we know today will be replaced by robotics or ai or some sort of intelligence artificial intelligence yeah. on that regard i think hospitality is going to be a long sustaining industry for years to come because people still have to eat. I think hospitality was going to, uh, hospitality is going to develop into uh, a lot of different segments. I think those food delivery companies like Uber Eats, like uh, Deliveroo, I think they're going to be dominant players in the infrastructure of society. I mean, there's still going to be a lot of technology coming along to service that market. In terms of hospitality itself, I think fast food, cheap eats restaurant is going to be incorporate more technology than fine dining restaurants. It's, I mean, we already see in certain part of America, a burger shop, you go in and it's just in the kitchen, there is robotic arms licking burgers. And there's no, yeah, there's probably one human being. I, I remember years ago, I read a report about job market. This is a report compiled by Merrill Lynch. I think this was 2000 and around about 2016. Yes, that's right, 2000. So they talk about their uh, investment banking, brokerage, superannuation, all that. They're saying at the end, they only, they're going, they only need one human uh, in the office. And that is someone coming to turn on the computer. That's it. Everything else will be, <laughs> will be replaced by AIs. And the following year, they compiled another report. And they say, even that person, that job is going to be obsolete. AI will be able to do that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's, Another example, for instance, uh, Amazon. Uh, as far as I know, uh, the purchasing department from Amazon is completely staffed by AIs. And they basically send out emails to suppliers, uh, what is the best price you can give for these products? And uh, then email come back and they say, oh, choose the price. Uh, this guy's $5, that's $3, and this is $2.50. And, 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 they will, and they will go back to $5, they'll say, hey, you know, this price is too much. The best price we got is two fifty. Can you? Uh, but we like the product better. Can you give the best price possible? Try to match that price at this set quantity. Walmart. They came to a conclusion. All their staffing will be eventually replaced by AIs, and that's already. I mean, that transition is already taking place. Yes. And uh, then someone said, "There's only one job that's well, impossible to be replaced by AIs. That is when you took take uh, when you do a stock taking. How can you get AIs to do that? And you know what?" And the following year, AI robotics uh, to do stock taking came along. So it's like a shelf, a cabinet, and they have wheels on the bottom, and they have scanners at a different shelf height, and they just scan the shelf. When there's the people, they actually 
they actually go sideways, they avoid the traffic and they keep going. So, and as a result, the self-taking now from Walmart is much more accurate than humans. I was going to say, in terms of your restaurant, like, what are you thinking then? Are you going to bring, are you thinking about robotics at the moment? Like, is that even in your, in your ballpark of thinking or are there any kind of other parts of technology which you're thinking about for a week? I think eventually, I think in the restaurant industry, there's two types of jobs. They will never, I don't think it will be replaced by machineries. Yeah. One is people with people's skills, you know, negotiation power, people who not really know about service and uh, this sort of skill set, it won't be replaced. And the other uh, job that will always be there is designs, people with creativities. Uh, hospitality industry actually has a lot of linkage with design industries. You know, we at here, we use website designers, interior designers, yep. graphic designers, um, user interface expert and all of that. And now, of course, we know the whole world is going to turn into metaverse. So there'll be a lot of space, uh, a lot of virtual environment and, and that needs to be uh, designed. So all that's going to be, it's going to be huge. So whereas fast food, I think, yeah, sure. They will be bringing robotic waiters, waitresses um, to service the people, but where's, and also drones to deliver to people. But we in fine dining restaurant, people come really for experience. I think the most we can do is the food runners can be replaced with AI. Yeah, sure, we can do that. The bar people, the food run, I think the supervisors, the host, yeah, it has to be, it has to be about people. You talk like you talk so effortlessly about technology. Is it, it's it's definitely a fait accompli. Where I've had other people on the podcast and and other people I talk to generally saying like, oh, I don't know. I think it's you know a lot further down the road. I'm not sure if it will happen. I'm very much on your side, thinking that it's definitely going to happen. It's just a matter of like how quickly it will happen. Do you think the fact that you have been in technology from like the '90s? that you've seen, you know, so much change in technology, you understand it really deeply. Like, do you think that's the reason why you're thinking that way, where a lot of restaurateurs are maybe erring on the other side of caution? <laughs> yeah, I think because as I, as I mentioned, re, uh, hospitality is a very intense industry. It's mm. long hours. So this, I mean, there's a saying, if you do hospitality, there's no lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, I, I use the same description for lawyers and doctors, the same. But it is a very, very challenging. It's not for everyone. It's a very engaging industry. And I, I enjoy it immensely. Yes. Yeah. It's long hours. So it doesn't give people, uh, management, a lot of time to go out to, for self-improvement, to equip themselves with current affairs, technological developments, all that. So with my restaurants, it's, as I briefed earlier, the team is very solid. Of course, I come in to check up. My team had to feel my presence, but a lot of times these days, I really spend self-learning, keep myself updated with technology developments. So the time that we live in now, really, if you think about it, what technology is trying to do is decentralization. So breaking down every fragment of our lifestyle that is, I suppose, facilitated by the governments. As far as of now, the technology, the monetary system that we, we can see on the internet and the infrastructure for communications. I know all this is saying a lifestyle in metaverse is already ready. Mm. It's very much mature. It's very much mature. We really just need someone like, yeah, like Zuckerberg, like Microsoft, like WeChat to come along and to stitch all this up, to create a space to facilitate all this. Once you come along, I have to say, yeah. And the power of government, it was just going to be diminished even further. Yeah. yeah, the politics, uh, the scene of politics, the landscape of politics, the finance, the way that we live, it's just going to be completely different. 
is coming to be a lot more decentralized, as you just said. My final question to you, Shang, like, you know, we've obviously had a couple of hard years in the industry. And the final question I always like to ask my guests is like, what are you looking forward to next 12 months? Like 2022 really hasn't started off the way that many people hoped it would. You know, I think we're, we're hopefully starting to get a bit better here in Australia. Like, but what are you looking forward to in the next 12 months, sort of professionally and personally? Well, I somehow feel it's going to be a very challenging year. It's, I think it's going to be a very different year from the last two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of the aftermath of COVID, you know, we, we didn't really experience. That's going to be in January, we already experienced this, you know, everyone getting sick, high yeah. case numbers and all this stuff, breaking down of supply chains and all this stuff we didn't really experience. Uh, thanks to big help from the government, support from the government, uh, the public. Uh, and I think we're going to have to experience in, in reality in okay. 2022. In terms of, for me, it's really, I think it's consolidated Rui mm-hmm. as the main modern Chinese venue in Melbourne mm-hmm. and to further educate people what is, what is modern Chinese. I mean, it's not really just a cliche to, to simply say it's modern Chinese. Yes. It's, yeah, and what sort of work that we put behind to modernize Chinese cuisines and also people's lifestyle. Sheng, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I know you've got a, a busy Friday service to go and to go and look after. So I'll let you go. What's the best way that people can find out about Ruri Restaurant and, and come on in? We are on Liverpool Street or website. Uh, so the restaurant name is Ruri, pronounced as R-U-Y-I. And our website is uh, Ruri.com.au, which is, sorry to say, still a work in progress, but it should, the new website should come alive. Our phone number is 9090-2478, And yeah. simply just drop in. Yeah, we open most of most days of the week we're trying to be as always those are linked up in the show notes of this podcast so you can go down and support this fantastic restaurant shang thanks so much for your time thank you thank you so much yeah thank you so much sean and thank you everyone for listening and i hope to see you all soon in really one day thanks everyone for tuning to another episode of principle of hospitality i hope you really enjoyed that one i definitely know i did Now, please comment, like, and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. We're making this content with the industry in mind, so we'd really appreciate you sharing it along. As always, thanks to our major supporter, the largest family-owned and operated hospitality supplier in Australia, Chef's Hat, where the industry shops. And if you don't know us at Poe, Sash, my co-founder from Principal Design, has one of the best quick design agencies in Australia. You can find them at principaldesign.com.au and myself at Open Pantry Consulting for anything to do with systems and processes to make your venue run even more smoothly. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Thanks for supporting us as always. And until next time, stay safe, everyone.